What do you fear? What tools do you use to let go of, move through, and live with fear? Welcome to episode 327 of The Recovery Show. This episode is brought to you by Deborah, Craig, Petrina, and Timothy. They use the donation button on our website. Thank you, Deborah, Craig, Petrina, and Timothy for your generous contributions. This episode is for you. We are friends and family members of alcoholics and addicts who have found a path to serenity and happiness. We who live or have lived with the seemingly hopeless problem of addiction understand as perhaps few others can. So much depends on our own attitudes, and we believe that changed attitudes can aid recovery. Before we begin, we would like to state that in this show, we represent ourselves rather than any 12-step program. During this show, we will share our own experiences. The opinions expressed here are strictly those of the person who gave them. Take what you like and leave the rest. We hope that you will find something in our sharing that speaks to your life. My name is Spencer, and I will be your host today. Joining me is Barb. Welcome back, Barb. Thanks so much. You wanted to start with, I think, a couple of readings here. Yeah, I'd love to. I'm an ACA, Adult Children of Alcoholics or Dysfunctional Families. Uh, The first one is from our daily reader, which is called Strengthening My Recovery Meditations for Adult Children of Alcoholics. The reading is on June 11th, page 169. And the title is Fear. Adult children often live a secret life of fear. Big Red Book, page 10. Everyday individuals use faith to overcome fear. As polar opposites, fear and faith cannot occupy the same space. Fear involves a tightening of the senses, whereas faith requires a complete release of them. The ACA recovery program teaches us to identify and expose our fears to the light of day. We accomplish this with the loving support of others and our higher power. We do this in a safe environment where no one judges us for our past, for our fears, or for the ingrained reactions we carry from our childhoods. Most of us go through life waiting to exhale, wanting to not feel defined by the position we hold, our possessions, or someone else's concept of who we should be. We have given our fear a lot of power to control our reactions, but we are exhausted by all this work and want to feel peace and serenity in our lives. ACA gives us the chance to feel free to be the person we were meant to be, someone who is loved and respected for who we are, not what we do. As we strengthen our belief in our higher power, we free ourselves from our fears and stop believing our staunchest critic, our false self. We become our own loving, nurturing parent. On this day, I will be aware of any fear that encroaches on my ability to focus on recovery. With the loving support of my fellow ACAs and my higher power, I will release that fear and feel at peace. Thank you. What's the second one? The second one is from The Language of Letting Go. So this isn't affiliated with any one recovery program in particular, but it's a daily reader that we often use in our meetings. And I'm reading from page 10. It's dated January 10th, also entitled Fear. Do not be too timid and squeamish about your actions. All life is an experiment. The more experiments you make, the better. What if they are a little coarse and you may get your coat soiled or torn? What if you do fail and get fairly rolled up in the dirt once or twice? Up again, you shall never be so afraid of a tumble. And that quote was from Ralph Waldo Emerson. Fear can be a big stopper for many of us. Fear of fragility, fear of failure, fear of making a mistake, fear of what others might think, fear of success. We may second guess our next action or word until we talk ourselves out of participating in life. But I failed before. I can't do it good enough. Look at what happened last time. What if? 
These statements may disguise fear. Sometimes the fear is disguising shame. After I finished the first two chapters of a book I was writing, I read them in grimace. No good, I thought. Can't do it. I was ready to pitch the chapters and my writing career out the window. A writer friend called and I told her about my problem. She listened and told me, those chapters are fine. Stop being afraid. Stop criticizing yourself and keep on writing. I followed her advice. The book I almost threw away became a New York Times bestseller. Relax. Our best is good enough. It may be better than we think. Even our failures may turn out to be important learning experiences that lead directly to and are necessary for an upcoming success. Feel the fear, then let it go. Jump in and do it, whatever it is. If our instincts and path have led us there, it's where we need to be. Today I will participate in life to the best of my ability, regardless of the outcome that makes me a winner. Thank you. I just wanted to note that you actually signed up to do this topic what about a month ago? Yeah. Before, before all of this <laughs> all of this coronavirus and and everything which is generating I think a lot of anxiety and fear in many of us. Yeah. So I want to ask what is inspired the right word here what moved you to suggest mm-hmm. this topic? Well, in our laundry list, which is like a description of characteristics that adult children identify with when they come to the program, there's one that always really resonated with me, which is fear of success and failure. And one of the promises of of the program is fear of failure and success will leave us. And so fear of failure, I think we can all understand that, but fear of success. And at first I was like, fear of success, that's such a weird thing. It seems counterintuitive, but I can totally identify with it. And because I've been afraid of success, I don't start things and I haven't started things. I'm starting things more. So I think fear is disguised as a lot of behaviors for myself in both action and inaction. So that's why I chose it. And then, yes, it wasn't lost on me when we all started staying at home. And I said, wow, I'm going to do a topic on fear. (laughs) It's really timely. (laughs) Right. And and I thought, well, geez, you know, I, I did this. Short one, just three weeks ago, Fear and Anxiety. And actually, that was sort of a bonus episode because it came between two episodes, but I just, I was moved to record something. Sure. What I didn't do, because that would have probably stopped me because of uh, fear of not being perfect. (laughs) I didn't say to myself, gee, I could like do a little daily reflection. I I just said, I'm going to do this one. And it turned out to be just one. Yeah. Right? Yeah, I liked it. At that moment, it's like, hmm, what? You know, we're just right now, like, we need to hear each other and I need to, I need to process my feelings and maybe I could do it every day. And I thought, no, don't, don't go there. Don't go there. <laughs> I could totally relate. <laughs> when we started the recovery show back in the end of 2012 and early 2013, we did have daily meditation posts on the website, and they were almost every day. One of my co-hosts was doing most of them. And when she couldn't continue with the show, I realized I I couldn't do that. I couldn't do that every day. So, yeah. <laughs> so I already knew, like I couldn't write one every day. What made me think I could say one every day? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> but it was there. It was there. 
when I looked at the topic and I realized, okay, we're not talking necessarily about what's happening in the world right now where there are lots of both sort of specific and inchoate fears floating around, but fear as a topic in general, I went back to the structure that we started with in terms of how I thought about looking at this, which is what was fear like before recovery, hmm. right? We we would start with, hey, what was it like? You know, what was it like? What happened? What's it like now? That That little pattern. But I think in terms of thinking about how, what I'm afraid of and how I, I'll say deal with, I don't really like that term deal with, but I, I couldn't come up with a better word. It's night and day to some extent how that was before I found this program of, of recovery, before I found the support of higher power, et cetera, and, and how it is now. And also just how many more fears that I had just sort of living in me back then. So I thought maybe it would be helpful to start there. Mm-hmm. I'm going to throw that to you first. How about that? Oh, sure. <laughs> so what was fear like before recovery? And what's yes. it like now kind yeah. of thing? Yeah. Let's start well, with what was it like before recovery? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I have a long list here. And it doesn't mean that it <laughs> that I don't feel some of them now, but things sure. are different. So fears before I came into recovery. So fear of success, I mentioned. I know that that seems odd, but it would definitely a driver for either you know inaction or or action, but like in a reactive sense kind mm-hmm. of thing. Uh, fear, fear of failure, not being able to start at all. And then, and this is an interesting one, fear of being uncomfortable while afraid. And so what that means for me is I used to really struggle with panic attacks. And I knew what it was like to have one. So then I was afraid of having another one because it's very uncomfortable. And then I would be afraid to get into a situation where I would have one. And so, yes, it mm-hmm. would perpetuate, right? Fear of authority figures. So this is both like people I perceive to be authority figures and actual authority figures. And it's always been hard for me to discern the two because, you know, in the workplace, for example, I might project onto a boss or someone like, oh, this is like my alcoholic stepfather kind of thing. And so then I am the child and I act this way and that way and and act in ways that don't serve me anymore. You know, things that maybe were survival traits I developed when I was a kid, but but no longer serve me. Fear of angry people. I guess it's somewhat self-explanatory, although it can be for me, both people who are in the actively angry at me for something. And then also people that I perceive to be quick to explode or quick to anger and being afraid of them. Fear of other people's disapproval of my actions. That's always been a big one. That one I still struggle with. That one I'm working on. Uh, Fear of other people's discomfort. With when I would share about my childhood trauma. So I would want to shield people and spare them from, you know, feeling pain about my past pain. And then I just wouldn't share it all. Let's see. And then on a similar, uh, similar to people's disapproval of my actions, I've always been afraid that people would disagree and disapprove of my beliefs and then therefore like not you know, want to be associated with me or something. And then the fear that people will not value me as much as they do now, unless I shower them with a lot of attention and, and things like, like this or gifts or something like that. So a long list. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
Okay, now it's my turn. I, I would have to think about that fear of success because I can't say that I have identified that explicitly. Mm. I think for me, that may have come out as fear of partial success. Like fear that if I start something and I only get part way to where I think I want to get, it's not perfect. Fear of imperfection, maybe fear of not being perfect, even though somebody else might say, well, that's a success, which is, is a slightly different angle than fear of failure, which is to some extent also there. Mm -hmm. And that I think came from experience of, having really lofty goals yeah, and not achieving them and considering that as failure. I don't know. Yeah. Those, yeah. those two are interesting together for me. I, mean, I can elaborate on the success thing. It's kind of like if I am to succeed at something, like here's a good example. I had an LLC or something I was setting up a couple of years ago. And then I thought to myself, well, if I set this up, how do I know how to get a bank account and how do I know how to do this? And then I would feel overwhelmed and be like, I'm not going to know how to do the next step if I get oh, this thing launched. Okay. That's for me, that's what it means. Okay. Oh no, Fear I can of totally not see that. What else to yeah. do. <laughs> and then just not yeah. start it. <laughs> right. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know how to finish the thing all the way through. So I won't start. Yeah. Which, okay. So, I want to come back to that one later because mm -hmm. there's some some program principles that I think actually have helped me with that kind of thing too. Mm. Fear of authority figures. Okay, so I'm out walking the dog the other night. There's nobody else around because there's hardly anybody out on the streets yeah. these right. days. <laughs> and and I'm walking along a, a fairly major street and this car comes along and stops at the stoplight and I look over and it's a police car uh -huh. and I'm like, okay, I'm going to be friendly because everybody's being a little more friendly these days. And I wave yeah. at him and the guy just looks at me <laughs> and I'm like, oh shit, <laughs> what is he thinking? Yeah. What am I, am I doing something wrong? <laughs> am I doing something wrong? Exactly. Am I doing something wrong? And I think that's for me where the fear of authority figures comes in is that I'm sure I'm, I'm sure I'm convinced I'm doing something wrong and they're going to catch me at it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That probably comes from some parental things. Who knows? It does for me. Um, yeah. <laughs> fear of angry people, disapproval. Yes. Oh my God. Yes. Mm -hmm. Those are things that to some extent are still there. I think that the way that I react to them is probably different. So we'll come back to that. Mm. My fears before program we're very much rooted in this expression that I just picked up from somebody and that I love of living in the wreckage of the future. Fear of might bees. Mm -hmm. That, that to me has been huge. I'm going to write that down. Fear I've of picked that be. up from your show. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I had never sure. heard that before. And now I say it all the time. Well, I didn't have that expression. It was, but it was the, when I heard it, it was like, Oh my God. Yeah. Because that fear takes me to these places where the future is awful. Mm -hmm. yeah. It starts with something small. It starts with, oh, 
our bank account is overdrawn again. And it goes to, we're going to lose our home and yep. <laughs> everything. And, and it could go there so fast. And then I would spend an hour lying in bed in the middle of the night with this fear keeping me all wound up and awake and, and, and I couldn't get out of it. And I think that's right. part of part of the difference now is, and I'm getting ahead of myself, but I, that's where I'm going. I think there's two things. One is it's easier for me now to recognize when a fear is unrealistic. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I have tools to not get stuck in the fear. So how did fear manifest itself in you, particularly pre-recovery? We're going to assume that recovery has at least reduced some of these manifestations. Yeah. Well, I, I think a lot of it was manifested itself in my early 20s when I was in college and had some profound panic attacks and it would just seem to come out of nowhere. And it got to the point where I was afraid to either leave my dorm or afraid to drive. It was pretty, pretty challenging. And my fear of authority figures would manifest in things like I would be afraid to ask for things at work that I needed either to do my job or afraid to ask for a raise or afraid to ask for, I don't know, just afraid to raise something, afraid to even ask for things from my parents. And I still, to this day, sometimes have a hard time with that. And my mom has reminded me, she's like, you know, you don't have to do it all yourself. I don't know why. I'm always afraid of like taking advantage of someone's kindness. But now that I'm a parent, I feel like I should know better. It's like, no, your parents are there. They want to help you. My fear of angry people would mean that I just would not dissent with anyone ever, even if I completely disagree. I would just not. And even to the extent where I would just feign agreement <laughs> and then they would never know. And, and it's interesting now in recovery that there are some people in my life that I think they think I'm changing in a way where they don't really know me as well anymore. But what is interesting is that that really is just a false part of me that they met, that they didn't really get to see their whole me, mm. you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and as I said before, like uh, fear of trying to spare other people's discomfort with my history. And so I just wouldn't tell my story. And that's not, you know, that's not helpful. I mean, there are safe places to share, right? And so before recovery, sometimes I had a hard time discerning when it was safe to say something. But now when I'm in a conversation with a friend, and it's just one-on-one, -on -one, that's, you know, that's okay to, to share those things. The fear that people will disagree and disapprove of my beliefs, well... I struggle with that one because there are a lot of things that I feel very strongly about when it comes to, you know, human rights or faith or politics or things like that. I mean, these are all polarizing and difficult for anybody, not just for me personally or people in recovery. To the extent where I just don't share those things, you know, they're pretty, pretty important. When people do visit my home, I think it becomes pretty obvious just from looking around and seeing the kinds of things I have around and things I support and, and stuff that people get a sense of what I'm about. But yeah, that's how they manifest. And I know we're going to talk about feelings and things and manifestations too. Yeah. Going back to fear of failure, fear of mm -hmm. success, partial success, whatever. For me, that that one manifested in not starting things, which is perhaps a little ironic because I think – from the outside, if somebody looked at the arc of my life, 
I think they would see that, oh, that's very successful looking. Yeah. You know, I graduated college with honors and I got a PhD and, mm-hmm. and so on and so forth. And I have a good job and I have a, a house in a nice neighborhood and that all looks like success, right? And by some marker. Mm-hmm. And when I look at that, I see the things that didn't happen. I see yeah. the NSF grant that I did not successfully complete and therefore never got another one. I see being denied tenure and therefore being fired effectively. And just to follow through on that one, I'm in a job that I actually enjoy a lot more than I did when I was a, a faculty member, okay? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I look at those those markers of you know bad decisions and and oh well what if I had taken this other job when I graduated where would we be and mm-hmm. you know would would I have succeeded at it at this other place so we go back and it's like I see the things that I didn't start I see the things that I didn't to my mind complete successfully mm-hmm. because at least partially of that paralysis that happens when you're afraid of not being perfect. Excuse me. When I'm afraid of not being perfect. <laughs> I, I I really try not to use that that you terminology when I'm speaking of myself. It manifests later in looking back and saying I didn't succeed. And therefore I won't succeed, right? Yeah. Right. I don't want to start this new thing because I won't I won't get it right. If I take a realistic perspective, it's like no. You know, that's not true. I've succeeded in so many things, but I see the things that I didn't succeed at. And when we get to, you know, we're going to be bankrupt living in a car under a bridge somewhere. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that one was just sort of paralyzing. Yeah, sure. What did I feel? I felt despair. I felt hopeless. I felt sometimes physically fearful that something was going to happen because my loved one was going to do something while drunk that was going to hurt us, hurt me, hurt our children. Mm -hmm. But I didn't have any way to act out of and by act out of, I mean an action I could take to get me out of mm-hmm. the fear, not like acting out, which is a different thing. I realized right. that as I was saying it, like that wasn't <laughs> what I meant. And so those fears that I couldn't reduce, I couldn't let go of, I couldn't somehow get through, piled up. And I stuffed them. Because it's not something that one does to talk about the things that one is afraid of. Right. At least yeah. when one is uh, an American male. Sure. <laughs> mm-hmm. I didn't have any place where I could say those things. You were talking about fear of authority figures, and I was thinking about Slightly different, but very similar fear of admitting that I did something wrong. Mm-hmm. When I was a freshman in college, some friends of mine, a friend of mine and I, and maybe there were two friends, I don't remember. We had been given some some privileges at 
the computing center at, at college. And this was, uh, what, 1973, 74. So computing center was a thing that you had at college. There was none of this personal computers in your room or, you know, personal mm-hmm. computers in your pocket, for God's sake. Oh. That just didn't happen. There were terminals and card readers in the computer center. And that was mm-hmm. where you went to use the computer. And, and I was very much into computers at that point. We had on occasion been given the privilege of using a higher speed terminal that was in the offices of the computing center. And that night we wanted to get in there and do something. And I don't even remember what, and the door was locked. Okay. We're like, oh, well, you know, paperclip, doorknob. Okay. Doorknob meet paperclip. We got the door open, but we also totally jammed up the lock. And we were like, well, maybe, maybe we can get away with nobody noticing. Hmm. Okay. And this is, this is where the fear of admitting that I'm wrong, that I did something comes in. Right. Right. So the offices were actually in a trailer and it had a door on both sides. And so we swapped the doorknobs from the two sides. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) We were thinking, we were really thinking, okay, this is an early aspect of the, you know, don't think. Okay. Well, the doorknob on the other side didn't fit the key. The same key. <laughs> so when the director of the computing center came into work in the morning and was unable to open the knob, it was pretty obvious that something had gone wrong. And it became clear very quickly who had probably done the thing. <laughs> and we got in a whole lot of trouble for it. Mm-hmm. I think I was banned from the computing center for several years. I mean, I, I could <laughs> I could like go in and do my work, but I had no privileges except for the things that I had to be able to do as a student. <laughs> And I look at that and I say, well, how would that have worked out if instead of being afraid of admitting that I totally screwed up and just admitting it, you know, mm-hmm. leaving, the, leaving the knob broken and putting a note saying, we're really sorry we did this thing. Would I have gotten a lighter consequence? I don't know. I, mm-hmm. I'm pretty darn sure I would not have gotten a, a harsher consequence. Right. So acting out of that fear probably contributed to harsher consequences than I would have had had I pushed through the fear and and done the thing that that now I do. I guess I'll flip forward for a moment here. When I started working the program and, and I saw the power, in particular, I early saw the power of Step 10. Of mm-hmm. of when I was wrong, promptly admitted it. Yeah, because it didn't pile up more stuff for that inventory and those amends. Hmm. Uh, yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm still in computers. It's been a theme since I was I don't know 14 or something. We had this website used by I don't know how many people at that point. It's it's millions of people a day now. And I did a thing that basically took the whole thing down for a few minutes. Mm-hmm. Just totally broke everything. <laughs> and that little voice in my head said was, maybe you can fix it and nobody will notice. Mm-hmm. That little mm-hmm. voice is still there. Right. <laughs> okay. It's still there. You know, that that devil sitting on, on my left shoulder. But I was working a program at that point. And I was like, I can't do that. Mm-hmm. Number one, I probably won't get away with it. 
But number two, my program says when I'm wrong, I promptly admit it. I fixed it very quickly, which is why that maybe nobody will notice part came up. And so I <laughs> sent out an email to the group saying, look, I did this thing. Here's here's what happened. I fixed it. It's it's okay now, but I need to let you know. Right. And everybody was like, well, thank you. <laughs> you know, <laughs> which is not the reaction that my fear expected. Yeah. My fear expected, blah, 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 you son of a whatever. Why did you do that? How could you have done such a stupid thing? Mm-hmm. That's what the voice inside my head was saying. And that's what I expected the people outside my head to say. And I, I do believe some of that came from the way that my father had the right way of doing things. Mm. If you didn't do things the right way, you heard about it. And he wasn't a violent man. He wasn't necessarily a loud man. But it was very clear that there was strong disapproval. You know, we would go visit my parents at their house when I'm an adult in my 50s. And I would not load the dishwasher because I knew I would do it wrong. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Okay. So I I have a pretty strong idea where at least part of that fear comes from. The difference now in that particular case was, I would say, so where do I put this? Mm -hmm. Rather than putting it and then waiting for him to tell me it was in the wrong place. Yeah. Okay. Like I I have learned these tools for living with other people, partly. (laughs) Right. Understanding that somebody who's been doing something this way for all of my life is probably not going to change just because I want him to. Right. And that I can either continue to provoke the bear (laughs) or I can learn to stay out of the bear's way. Uh That is not something that I knew before coming into recovery. Like I only knew the one way and that always ended up provoking the bear. Yeah. So, yeah, how did I deal with my fears then? Not well. By <laughs> by acting in ways that were counter to my best interests in many cases, by not getting sleep, mm. probably by drinking. Mm-hmm. I know there were times when I was like, damn it, I got to get to sleep and, and this thing is going around in my head and I'm just going to have a nice stiff drink and hopefully that will let me sleep. I'm really grateful that I don't have that alcoholic allergy because I would have gone yeah. that place. Me too. Yeah. Right in the middle here, I was like, so what is fear? How do I understand what fear is? Yeah. There's like this evolutionary basis of fear that when there's a clear and present danger, fear is a good thing. Mm -hmm. Right? Fear mobilizes us to act to escape that danger. Yes. The the stereotypical tiger in the underbrush. How does it get so twisted? (laughs) I know. And I was thinking about it. Yeah, like what you just said. I think there's reasonable fear. And it's reasonable to be afraid when danger is imminent, right? But then there's also fear as a result of catastrophizing about what might happen that hasn't happened yet. (laughs) And without imminent danger. And, And to your point about fear being a call to action. I remember when I first started seeing my current therapist, he said to me, your ancestors are those that the predator would come around and they would take to the trees. (laughs) It seems like, so you have that going for you. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) 
take to the trees. Mm-hmm. <laughs> run away, run away. Right. <laughs> there's, there's a number of acronyms for fear. I think we like acronyms in recovery because it helps us to see things in maybe a different way. Mm-hmm. And the one that I heard, I think, earliest was false evidence appearing real. Oh, yeah. That's so good. It's really good. When I think about false evidence appearing real, Mm -hmm. the future catastrophizing, that's false evidence, but my brain makes it real. Right. It's about me making up a danger that's not really there and then being afraid of it, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Moving forward, we get acronyms like face everything and recover. And and I've heard some others that are more forward oriented and I can't remember them right now, but I'm sure that listeners will remind me (laughs) 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 because they do. That has been part of recovery for me is facing those things that I'm afraid to look at. I was hearing somebody talk about inventory recently that in the Al-Anon literature, it gives this metaphor of you own a toy shop and you want to know how many Frisbees you have and how many stuffed animals you have so that Mm. you don't buy more of things that you already have and you buy things that you're out of so that you can keep on selling stuff, right? Mm -hmm. You don't end up with a, a, a shop full of, I don't know, stuffed armadillos that nobody wants. Right. (laughs) When you put it that way, inventory is a very neutral thing. It's Mm -hmm. just, what do I have? What do I not have? What do I have that's that's not selling to stick with the store inventory? But for me, at least, there was a whole lot of fear going into that because I knew that I had these deep, dark defects and secrets. Yeah. I'm going to pause there and say, were there fears around that for you in coming into recovery? Yeah, like the fourth step inventory. I haven't completed it yet. I'm working on it now. I think I've moved past this fear to start it. And now I'm looking at it saying, you know, I think I'm more afraid of what will happen if I don't do it. Because I've read about adult children getting stuck in this shame cycle. So I don't complete the inventory. I think I'm going to be repeating the very behaviors I don't want to repeat. What brought me to recovery in the first place was to not repeat these behaviors. I'm less fearful of looking at those things now. And that gets right to this face everything and recover acronym that by pushing through that false evidence that if I look at myself, it's going to be horrible. I'm going to die, whatever. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Right. If <laughs> I admit these things to another human being, I'm going to be perpetually shamed. I'm going to be rejected. Nobody's going to mm-hmm. like me, mm-hmm. which is the next step. Right? right. Partly by pushing through them, but also partly for me, hearing the evidence of other people. Yeah. Who have been there and who say, this is liberating, this is freeing, this is amazing. 
when I shared my deepest, darkest secrets with my sponsor in step five, the response was, yes, I've done those too. Uh Hearing that experience helped me to put aside the fear, to just push through the fear, to face it. Because the other thing that I heard was, when I did this, I got better. Yeah, I want what's on the other side of that. (laughs) I want what's on the other side. Yeah, I only see winning. I'm telling myself now, it's okay to feel fear, but I can name it now. It used to feel all muddled. You know, I would be afraid, and then I would be irritable or angry or sad. And there was all this big jumbled up thing. (laughs) Now I can say... I'm afraid right now. Why am I afraid? Okay, I can describe why I'm afraid and yeah. all those things. Yeah. So what has changed in recovery for me, a lot of it is not that I'm never afraid. Right. I think there's two big things here. One is I'm more able to recognize when I'm being afraid of something that's not real. And... I have tools that help me to not be consumed by fear. Yes. I think those are the two big things. And expressions like living in the wreckage of the future help me with, oh, this is not realistic. This is not something that's real. Some other slogans that come to me, there certainly is let go and let God, right? Mm Mm-hmm. When I have a fear of something that's real, and I have done everything that I can do at the moment to mitigate whatever consequence I'm afraid of, then I can let go and say, the next step is up to the universe. The next step is up to my higher power. Yeah. There's nothing more I can do right now. Right. Being afraid of what might happen when I've done my part isn't helping me. It isn't helping resolve the situation. It's just keeping me unhappy, miserable, depressed, Mm -hmm. paralyzed, all those things that I don't want to be. Right. And it's really easy for me to say that. It's a little harder to practice it, Uh but I get a lot of practice. Yeah. And I think that right there, the let go and let God, that's what's helping me now. As you mentioned, we (laughs) settled on this topic for today's podcast before we all started sheltering in place, but I'm doing, you know, what I can staying home. We have food here and my family is safe here and really you know, just have to first things first, do what I can, let go and let God. I'm glad I have that tool now because I didn't have that just over a year ago. Right. Just for today. Mm-hmm. One day at a time. We're going to get through this thing one day at a time. Oh, yeah. Some days it's been one hour at a time for me early mm-hmm. on when I felt really fearful, you know. I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. That's right. Yeah. And there are some things that that I can legitimately be concerned about. Yes. Aside from I might get exposed to this virus myself. Right. You know, I've talked about my family. 
talked about my parents who are 89 and 90 and not in the best health mm-hmm. to start with. Yeah. My brother who is immunocompromised, if they get exposed, their prognosis is not good. Right. Yeah, I have some vulnerable people in my family too. I also can't do anything about it. Yes. We can do everything that's prudent to do and follow the guidance. It is challenging. There's a lot of variables outside of all of our control. Yep. <laughs> if I was living in my fear and not able to understand that it's not helpful for me, it's not healthy for me to live in that fear, I would probably be bombarding my brother with all kinds of helpful suggestions. Mm-hmm. And all I would be doing would be pissing him off. <laughs> right. <laughs> okay. You already said that. I already know that. You don't need to say that to me. And not accomplishing anything. Yeah. So, yeah. The other day I went out shopping and and I try not to perseverate too much on the news. Right. But I had seen several things about those cloth masks might not be like a really bad idea after all. Mm-hmm. And I thought, okay. Yeah. I'll wear a mask when I go to the grocery store. Sure. Yeah. And maybe it'll help me. Maybe it'll just help the people around me feel more secure. Right. And it's, yeah, it's not the most comfortable. <laughs> Yeah, I haven't done it yet. I have the masks here if I need them, but I haven't had to go out. I've had groceries delivered so far. Yeah, so there you go. I'm not the advanced planner type so much. Mm -hmm. And it's like, oh, we're almost out of coffee cream. And, mm. and we can't wait the two days for a delivery, you know. Right. We should have figured this out a couple of days earlier, right? <laughs> we're all learning a lot. Yeah. You know? I went to Costco to get some things and, and got too much because it's Costco. <laughs> right. <laughs> I needed a couple of lemons. I got a five-pound bag of lemons because that's <laughs> well, what that's they have, comes. right? Okay. <laughs> yeah, right. And, and it meant I didn't have to go to another store. That's so right. there was a yeah. little bit of logic there. They were out of toilet paper again. Oh, well. Of course. <laughs> My wife said, yeah, you should get some toilet paper. I'm like, we have a whole package of toilet paper. She says, yeah, but we're going to break into it soon. And, you know, we should, as soon as we break in. And, yeah. and sure enough, they were out. So, mm-hmm. all right. You know, I, next time I go, I'll look. And if they have toilet paper, I get toilet paper. I'm not trying to, what do you call, stockpile. Hoard or whatever. Hoard. Hoard. There's the word. I think I am stockpiling, but I'm not hoarding. Right. <laughs> whatever. I read there's a psychological basis, uh, reading some article the other day by a clinician. The toilet paper overbuying is a result of like a fight or flight response. And so people are just, they're, right. they're hoarding because there's so many things outside of our control. They don't know what else they can do. What can I control? Toilet paper. I can buy <laughs> lots of it. I mean, that's what, that was the yeah. conclusion. I said, it sounds reasonable. Right. <laughs> and I'm glad you brought up fight flight because that is Mm -hmm. a fear reaction right yes it is that that is a reaction to fear that is very appropriate in the presence of immediate danger yeah and i've actually heard fight flight or freeze Mm -hmm. we have an infestation of rabbits in our neighborhood right now rabbits when they first see me my dog (laughs) Mm. 
their first instinct is freeze. Mm, mm-hmm. If I hold absolutely still, maybe the predator won't notice me. Right. Okay. How often have I done that in my life? If I just don't say anything, maybe nobody will notice. I used to do that as a child. Yeah. Right. I used to try to be invisible, but it's kind of hard to be invisible in a small space. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So in that circumstance, that is potentially an appropriate reaction. In the circumstance of a disease, a pandemic, probably not so much. Right. Because if I freeze, I'm not going to do the things I need to do to prepare. Yeah. If I flee, where would I flee to? Okay. I would flee inward, I think, which looks a whole lot like freeze except it's emotionally more fraught i can fight which i don't know exactly what that means does it mean being in denial does it mean this isn't going to happen to us we're going to ignore it and it's going to go away we're going to keep on living life which is sort of a fight response yeah the Uh resistance to what's prudent to do which is to distance you know Meeting yesterday, one of the members of the meeting is a nurse. Well, several of the members of the meeting are nurses, I'm sure. But this one is a very outspoken person Mm. and was really railing about driving home from work the other day. And I live in a college town. There are a lot of young people here. There are a lot of young people that live in big houses together because that's how they can afford to live Mm -hmm. in this town. And driving home and seeing all of these Young people outside partying, mm. you know, oh, gosh. playing beer pong or whatever. I don't know. Mm. And like, people. Ah! Oh, gosh. <laughs> yeah. I get it. I do get yeah. it. I drove by a house the other day and there were a bunch of people sitting out front in their lawn chairs because it was a nice day. Mm. And they had this great big sign set up that said, we all live here. <laughs> <laughs> We know you're mad at us for for looking like Reasonable. we're having a good time, like you know. <laughs> That's funny. But we actually all live in the same house, so we're already not distant or something, right? <laughs> I don't know. But on the other hand, we have been having video dinner with our daughter for the last several weeks uh, that's because nice. her bubble might have been exposed. Okay. She has a friend who had symptoms. I think mm. he's better now. Mm-hmm. They were symptoms that might have been consistent with COVID. Mm-hmm. Her reaction was very reasonable. She self-isolated. Yeah. And she's isolating from us. Right. And we're isolating from her. Yeah. But we still want to see each other. So we have a Zoom meeting or whatever for dinner, which gives us the illusion of all sitting down to dinner at the same table. It does, yeah. That's nice, though. We have a reasonable fear of contracting this disease for which there is no effective treatment and no cure mm-hmm. and no prevention. I think that's a reasonable fear. Yeah. But I think we're not overreacting. No. And and I think to some extent that comes from recovery. Yeah. Right. Well, these are the suggestions that have been made that things we can do and they make sense. And yeah. 
it's that's those are the things that we can do <laughs> and that's all we can do <laughs> take care of our mental health <laughs> and i really appreciate i thought it was a little bit of overreaction at the time mm-hmm. that my company started thinking about what are we going to do what is our response going to be and they had a plan in place so that when it became apparent that we needed to be not going into work, mm-hmm. we were ready to be right. not going into work. And it happened so quickly. I understand what you mean. It happened very quickly for my work, too. And it, I think that's part of the first two weeks. Like I had a lot of fear because it takes time to wrap our minds around the reality of the situation. And accept it. I think last week, at the end of the last week, I started to accept this new reality. So coming back to fear, for me, again, it's not that I don't still have a lot of these same fears. Yeah. I think what's different is the way that those fears affect me. Some of it is tools that I have learned through, well, almost a couple decades now of recovery. That fear of not succeeding completely. I have tools that are partly from learning ways of working and partly from program of breaking things down into small steps. Understanding that I might not have the right picture of the end goal when I start. I can put that in terms of planning work, mm-hmm. but I can also put that in program terms of, you know, slogan, do the next right thing. Or first things first, I guess, is the official slogan, but do the next right thing is one that I've heard a lot. Mm-hmm. There's something about planning, but not having expectations about outcomes. Right. I can do the thing that it seems to be the right thing to do now. Understanding that the final outcome might not be the thing that I want. It might not be Mm -hmm. the thing that I expect. But when I get partway there and I see, oh, it's not going where I want it to do, I still have this, what's the next right thing to do? What's, What's the first thing now? So letting go of expectations, I think, has been really, really big. And managing that fear, yeah. Yeah. And managing this living in the wreckage of the future kind of thing, because understanding that what it looks like today might not be what it looks like tomorrow. Mm-hmm. It's probably going to look different tomorrow. Yeah. That my worst expectations are almost never what happens. Right. That's a great one. Yeah. As my wife said to me, we were driving in the car one day and she said, you know, I was working on my fourth step with my sponsor and, mm-hmm. and I realized that a lot of my fears come out of lack of faith. Mm, mm -hmm. And that when I have faith from evidence that things will be okay, even if they're not what I want, then it becomes a lot easier to let go of fear. Yeah. I think that's a huge thing that I learned from working recovery. Even though I might not get what I want, I have never not gotten what I need. Mm-hmm. 
And I feel like I'm quoting the Rolling Stones here, okay? But Right. <laughs> <laughs> I could totally relate. I love that. <laughs> and and I think that is huge. Yeah. That is huge to understand that that my expectations are not the only good outcome. Right. Really helps to let go, to manage, to reduce the impact of potentially legitimate fears or unrealistic fears on on my life, on my mood, on my being able to get things done, whatever. How about you? Yeah, I really relate to what you were just saying. I've learned in recovery to not get too attached to anyone in particular outcome. It's not necessarily going to be what I envisioned or what I really wanted or desired, but it's always meets my needs. And a big one for me is I'm okay with not knowing now. Like when I set a course of action, put a plan in place. And if someone says to me, well, you know, what are you going to do next? I'm like, well, you know what? I don't need to know that today necessarily. And I'm actually okay with that. And that's a big first for me. I've never been that way. Right. And it's really working for me. And not to take other people's inventories or, you know, point up fingers at others at all. But I see other people in my life who are not okay with that. And I think it, it causes a lot of distress for them. And maybe that's a fear-based thing. But I'm okay with not knowing. I'm okay with it. Yeah, that is huge. All right. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you for being here. Thank you for this. I think it was a wonderful discussion. We will come back with our lives in recovery after a little break. But first, you have picked some music to help illuminate this topic. All right. First one is a song by Jason Isbell. It's called If It Takes a Lifetime. And here's some lyrics. I've been working here Monday, it'll be a year, and I can't recall a day when I didn't want to disappear, but I keep on showing up, hell-bent on growing up, if it takes a lifetime. Uh, He says, also, we got too far from my raising, and we fought till we went numb. You were running up a mountain in your own mind, and I thought that I was running too, but I was running from. Oh, our day will come if it takes a lifetime. Our day will come if it takes a lifetime. I, I just love this song. As soon as I heard, you know, hell-bent on growing up. Obviously, I can relate to that as an ACA, but I love this this idea of just keep showing up. Keep coming. Keep coming to the means. Just keep showing up for your life. Participate in life. I really like those, those ideas. In this section of the podcast, we talk about our lives in recovery. How have we experienced recovery? I'm going to say recently. So, yeah, this week, I'm still working. Both my wife and I are still working. One thing that changed, I think, at the end of last week, was it? Yeah. She had still been going to her office because she works for H&R Block preparing taxes. And the H&R Block lawyers had talked to the governor's office into considering tax preparation as an essential service, mm-hmm. which I can understand, especially with people in financial straits with maybe loss of a job, that being able to get their tax refund could really be important to them. Yeah. But after a couple of weeks, apparently the governor's office said, uh, you know what? No. They They took some time to look at it and said, no. You you 
you guys don't qualify as essential services. And mm-hmm. so they got a notice basically, I think after she had gone home from work, that the offices are closing, you're not allowed to go in, and everybody's going to be working from home. Mm. But how that affects me is now we're both home all the time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which I guess is sort of a preview of what life is going to be in a few years if I retire and whether I can retire in a few years talking about fear what with what's happened to the stock market and and mm-hmm. thus my retirement account will you know I'm just going to wait it out I mean mm-hmm. what I know is and this goes right back to our discussion and what I know is I can't do anything about it yeah okay if if and I, I'm not even I'm not even gonna go to the what if like oh wow I could have like jumped on it and moved money into bonds or something and mm-hmm. and I'm not gonna go there because yeah it's not helpful no and I don't think I would have done it mm-hmm. I have confidence that in fact that the market will recover eventually mm-hmm. I don't know how long that eventually is and what I right. know is I can keep on working. Uh-huh. I have a job that I can keep on working at. I'm in good health and so on. Right. Unrealistic fear. Uh-huh. Oh my God, my retirement account is going to be decimated and we're going to be eating dog food. <laughs> okay. There, you know, yeah. same thing, right? Living under a uh-huh. bridge, eating dog food. <laughs> okay. My brother's a poet and he has a poem that, that it has a line in it. Something like I've been poor. But only ramen poor, never dog food poor. Mm, yeah, this is distinct. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I mean, I guess this is the thing you think about when, when you're a poet, right? You know you're not making money at being a poet. Mm-hmm. You're, you're making money at, at some, you know, some job that he would be out of work if he was still doing right now. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so she's been home and it's been an adjustment. Mm-hmm. And I think we're probably both working our program a little harder to to live yeah. with each other 24-7, mm. to, to know when to stay out of each other's way, yeah. and to continue to have time together when it's good to have time together. Mm-hmm. I talked about video dinners with my daughter. That's an adjustment. The thing that's been almost hardest is dealing with the dog, dealing with us being home all the time. <laughs> Dog has expectations. Mm-hmm. Oh, you're home. You can go out with me. Mm-hmm. Well, no, dog, I can't. <laughs> <laughs> the flip side of that is that he reminds me mm. that just because I can work all the time, mm-hmm. I shouldn't. Yeah. Hey, it's time to get up out of that chair. And go spend some time outside. Yeah. The dog's in the room with me, so I'm not going to say the word, but we have had more <laughs> more, more strolls mm-hmm. in the last couple of weeks than ever, I think. <laughs> and I think it's good for both of us. And I think about it. So when I was working at an office, I would get out of the house in the morning. I would... Maybe walk to the bus, ride the bus, or I would walk to work. Mm-hmm. 
Usually, not always, I would get out of work at lunch. I would walk to some place where I would eat a meal and then I would walk back. And then in the evening, again, I would be out of the office. I would be outside. I would be either walking home or taking a bus or whatever. Mm-hmm. Now that my commute is, I don't know, 20 feet <laughs> rather than a mile and a half, which is still a pretty short commute. I understand that. It's really easy for me to not get that time that I'm not working that is important yeah. to keeping me sane. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in that way, I am grateful to the dog for telling me that it is now time for going out. Right. Uh, and being able to recognize that this is a good thing, that, that this is part of taking care of myself, which is yeah. something I learned in Elanon. Go figure. <laughs> How's your week? It's good. I'm working at home full-time now. I've been working at home part-time. To be specific, I work a full schedule, but half the week I spend at home and half the week I work in the office. I've been doing that since before my son was born. So the home office thing isn't new for me, but the home office thing every day, all day is new. Learning when to take breaks, not to sit in front of the screen too long. I get weary sometimes because I'm trying to figure out how to, well, also we're homeschooling our son now and my husband is working. My husband teaches college. And so he had to migrate some of his classes to online. Some of his classes were already online. So he already has those skills, which is really good, but he had to take two weeks to essentially start all over again, start the semester over Mm -hmm. again. And I had to set things up in such a way. We each need our own space. And then my son needs his space to do some of this virtual learning he's doing. And the first two weeks, we had no content really from the school. We just did it ourselves. We're, we're pretty competent, capable people. And so we did a good job. But learning how to give each other grace, you know, sometimes people are going to feel agitated because we're at home all the time. It's hard to get away. And now, you know, our park is really busy. So going for a run or a bike ride is not as, as feasible as it was. So I'm trying to be patient. With, with everybody. There's been big adjustments. I'm feeling better at the end of this last week. Finding time to exercise has been important, but you know, I, I have a certain level of guilt because even when I'm taking breaks, then I'm feeling like, oh, I need to go spell my, my husband because he has work he needs to do too. He's doing the lion's share of the homeschooling because I have to be online more because it's just the nature of my job. In terms of recovery, so the facility where we typically have our Wednesday night ACA meetings and our Saturday morning ACA meetings, it's a hospital. And they said, (laughs) you cannot come here anymore. They told us that at the last Wednesday meeting when we were there, what, three weeks ago or something. And we said, oh, gosh. So we didn't totally understand the gravity of the situation with the virus and everything. And so one of our members said, oh, well, we'll have it at my apartment. We all said, okay, that sounds good. And then in the next two, three days, it became quite apparent that you know, there's some vulnerable people in our group, people with pre-existing health conditions, and just the fact that even people like me who are younger and theoretically healthier can spread it around and not know. That became apparent very quickly. We couldn't do that. So I looked at the tools I have, Skype and things, and I texted the people's whose phone numbers I had. And I said, Hey, we got to keep this going. And I'm thinking to myself, my recovery is fragile. I don't know about you. And I I mean, not you, Spencer, just you, the people in my group, like, I don't know about you guys, but this is fragile. 
And I'm feeling like we need to keep it going. So I just started setting it up. And right now I'm chairing both meetings (laughs) twice a week. And they have two different meeting formats. One's a red book reading and one's a step meeting. But we're getting more people. The meeting yesterday had 13 people, some people I had never met before because some of my friends shared the fact that, hey, there's this meeting going on. These people started up this meeting in the community and it's still in our home state. And they're like, oh, this is so great. Thank you for doing this. It just continues to grow. And now I'm reading articles online and even CNN has an article today about recovery online. And I said, oh, wow. And I was like, wow, I didn't know that there were all these blogs and things about this. I was too busy doing it. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was like, wow, I should write something. And I'm like, I'm too busy doing it. I don't have time to write about it. <laughs> it's really rewarding. It's been a, a lot for me, but I don't consider it a burden. I feel like one of my friends said to me, she said, you know, this is like the ho- service of the highest order. And I said, you know what? Well, I am happy to do it. And, and it's been really good experience and we're going to continue and we're getting our bearings now and away we go. <laughs> yeah. So we're both involved in helping to keep meetings going online, at least for the, the meetings that I would go to regularly. Another member of the meeting set up a, a Zoom account and scheduled meetings for them. But one of those meetings, I'm the group representative and I was like, you know what? I should probably be involved in helping to get the word out to people that we're online, how to log in Yeah, uh, with the changes that Zoom made this week to try to tighten up security. Now there's a password. So it's not just here's the meeting ID. Now I have to tell everybody and here's the password. Yeah, But at the same time, I feel like I need to preserve people's anonymity, right? So I set up a mailing list in my email client that I can put in the blind copy address. Mm. Oh, good idea. So there's an idea for people. If you're, if you're trying to email mm-hmm. a grouping and people maybe don't necessarily want other people to have their email, I, I send it to myself and blind copy everybody else. Mm-hmm. I also, since this is the first or second mailing, I say, by the way, I put together this list from the phone list that was created actually a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. So if you're no longer coming to the meeting, uh, you don't want these emails, just let me know. I'll take you off. Yeah. And then there are the people that I don't have email addresses for. I only have phone numbers for. Mm-hmm. This morning, I sent out maybe a dozen individual text messages. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yes, I've been doing that. <laughs> and, and I've been trying to, I'm sure there's a tool and, and Google tells me there are some, and I just don't know which ones I trust that I can put a bunch of phone numbers in and it will send individual text That's messages. That's what I need right? to know too. Yeah. I need to know how to do a distribution uh, list for texts. Distribution yeah. list. That's not a group text is what I'm That's right. Yeah. That's right. And, and maybe I'll figure that out by next week. But again, it's a two-year-old phone list because we haven't been real oh, good at keeping no. the phone list up to date for that meeting. Mm. I built a message that I was going to send, and at the beginning it says, you're getting this because you're on the phone list for this meeting from right. March 2018. If you don't want to be on this list anymore, just let me know, and I'll take yeah. you off. We've been getting a smaller-than-usual turnout for that meeting. Yes. I'm hoping that, that we'll build up the numbers Back to the people who want to be there, the people who need to be there. I know. The other thing that we've struggled with in this whole thing about Zoom bombing that Mm. you've probably heard about. We had a Zoom bomber yesterday, but I identified them and I I put them in the waiting room 
because one of my friends, there's a private chat option in Zoom, which people should know too, if you're, if you're leading a meeting. And one of my friends said, do you know this person? I don't recognize their number. I don't recognize their name. And they wouldn't announce themselves. You kind of do it like a dashboard, um, mm-hmm. like the World Service Organization has a list of you know phone meetings on yeah. that I've been yeah. in. The waiting room is essentially a dashboard. And I said, oh, I'm sorry. I don't know who you are. And can you you know announce yourself? And they didn't. And I put them in the waiting room and then they disappeared. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't think yeah. they belong there. <laughs> yeah, I got got an email from the the regional group for my uh, faith and mm. they had apparently had zoom bombers come into a vespers oh. meeting they had oh gosh and start oh. spouting hateful speech so they had a bunch of recommendations and that included things like using the waiting room and yeah. using a password and not mm-hmm. posting the details on a public website and throwing people out if they're disruptive don't feel guilty about throwing out somebody who's being disruptive just do it because it's for the health of the group, the health of the the meeting or whatever it is that you're doing. Yeah, it's a different kind of a world. In the physical world, yes, somebody could come into the room and and start saying things, but Mm. that's a lot less likely to happen, right? Yes. You know, usually what happens is somebody comes in and they don't understand, you know, quotes, the rules, and Mm -hmm. they start oversharing. Somebody will speak to them maybe afterwards, or if it just gets really bad during the meeting, we'll say, Sarah, you know, I've done this exactly once in 18 years. Okay. (laughs) Where somebody in a meeting where the format is you share once, you don't speak back to people, you don't cross talk on somebody's like third share. I was like, excuse me, in this meeting, (laughs) we only share once. So you've had your turn. Please let other people speak. Exactly once in 18 years. And with this fear of offending people or disapproval, like, you know, know. that's going to be hard, right? <laughs> it's been challenging for me. <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah. So it's it's something that we're, we're just going to have to figure out the new rules. Where I was going with that is the thing that we have struggled with in our – we haven't actually in either of those meetings had a full group conscience yet because mm-hmm. it comes around at a certain – cycle in the month and we haven't felt like we want to interrupt the meeting to maybe we should but anyway it's going to be like next week for both of those meetings we did decide that we didn't want to post meeting information on the web publicly Uh because then we don't know who's going to come in which has been an issue right i still have a couple of lists posted and i should say the recovery.show slash online i'm trying to keep it up to date i did put information about zoom bombing and, and a link to some of the things that we can do to reduce it the recovery.show slash online there's a couple of lists there which come from public websites it's just a link to public websites of lists of meetings in the los angeles area and meetings in colorado that are online And I thought about that when the Zoom bombing thing, like, should I have this link? And I thought, well, this is a link that it's it's already there. It's not like I'm posting information that's otherwise private. And people have sent me information about other meetings, Mm. and I have decided not to post it because it's not public information. And when I put it on the website, it's going to be public, you know. Right. But I thought these two, they're already up there. If you go to the Colorado Elena website, there's a link. And there's a whole bunch of Elena meetings in Los Angeles. My God, mm. it's a huge list. Anyway, but we decided we did not want to post the code and whatever for the meeting, the link mm-hmm. publicly. But step 12 says we carry the message. Yeah. How do we carry the message to people who aren't already in the group? 
Yeah, we were talking about this very topic and we had a group conscious the other day and someone said, well, should we be sharing this, you know, with people? Because it is an open meeting. The in-person physical meeting is open. I think maybe an alternative could be you could post it without the login details and have a representative's email for people to contact, I guess. Yeah, so that's exactly what we have done for for Mm -hmm. these two meetings is we actually created an anonymous email address you know, meeting name at Gmail, right? Hmm. And then we sent that to the local Al-Anon district website. They actually put another layer on top of it. I think they have a policy that, that email addresses that they put on the website are all at afgdistrict5.org, which is the website hmm. address. And it forwards to the, the email that we set up. So we didn't actually need to set that up, but whatever. Okay. So that... If somebody goes to the website and they're like, oh, there's a meeting Sunday night at 730. Uh-huh. It's a remote meeting, which is how they're designating online. They're calling them remote, whatever. Yeah. If you want information about how to attend this meeting, email hmm. this address. Yeah. And then there's a person who receives the email. There are a couple of us, actually, who would receive that email. Uh-huh. And we make a judgment call. Like, we yeah. don't want to interrogate the person because... No. Right? Yeah. But we make a judgment call, and we can send the, the person the meeting information. The first couple of weeks, we actually had somebody go to the church where the meeting was, and in one case, mm. put a note on the door, and in another case, somebody actually was there. Like, at the entrance to the parking lot, I think, is where she was, because she said she saw people. They would drive up. They would see the parking lot was completely empty, and they'd drive oh, away. They wouldn't yeah. even, you know, stop to walk up to the door, right? Mm. So she she put herself right at the entrance to the parking lot so she could wave at people and say, yes, the, the meeting is happening. It's online. Here's the information. So it's, it's a struggle. It really mm-hmm. is because we want yeah. to be available, but at the same time, we need to preserve the, the safety and the anonymity of the meeting. I know. There's also something that I'm dealing with now that I don't have the answer. Maybe listeners do. I'm not really sure. There's a few folks that are regulars at my meeting that I... I think the technological aspect of this has been a barrier for them, yeah. just the audio thing. And I haven't seen them virtually. And I'm I'm wondering how to reach them, have them feel empowered to join the meeting. So I don't right. know. I'm still working on that. Right. Yeah. yeah. On the flip side of that, I don't know that I've seen this in my meetings, but I've seen it the last couple of weekends in uh, my congregational meetings. Our church has gone online as many others have. There's a service on YouTube live. And then the last couple of weeks, they've had coffee hour on Zoom. And both last week and this week, I saw people in the Zoom meeting and they're using this breakout room feature so that you end up with maybe four to six people in a chat instead of 200 or whatever. Mm. which is unmanageable, right? Right. Both weekends, I saw people that have not seen physically at church for a while. Mm-hmm. In one case, the guy said, we haven't been to church in three years because his wife's disabled and it just was too hard for them to get there, but they were able to attend electronically. Yeah. So that goes both ways. Yeah, I've seen that too. I've seen some people in the meeting that I haven't seen in eight months, and now they're going to the phone meetings, and it's wonderful. Yeah, if people can get past that technology hurdle, 
mm-hmm. and actually enables attendance yeah. for, for people who weren't able to get there physically. Mm-hmm. We're starting the conversation, not in the meeting, but we're starting the conversation at church of how can we continue to be able to include these people who have been disenfranchised by their own reduced ability? Yeah. How can we continue to to welcome them as members of the community when we're all back together physically in the same building, whenever right. that happens? I think the same question could arise for our recovery meetings. I actually have attended a couple of physical meetings remotely because somebody invited me when I was on his iPad. Oh, yeah. (laughs) But it was an unusual thing. And I just Mm -hmm. wonder, can we make this more usual? I don't know. Yeah. The the article I read on CNN today said that it was about AA specifically. They had some feedback that people want to continue this even when in-person meetings start up again. It's really interesting. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So that's a big part of our, our life in recovery now, and it's going to continue to evolve. Yeah. Which speaks to, hey, what what comes next? Although before we go there, I do have a, a share from Alina, who's been telling us about her life in recovery and her experience of recovery show topics over the last couple of months or so. This week, she shares on hope, which just seems so appropriate right now. Hi, my name's Alina. I just wanted to share on episode 65. The topic was hope. I've always loved that word and, you know, the meaning behind it. I have a pillow that's in my living room. It's a cute little decorative pillow, kind of rectangular in shape, and it just says hope on both sides. It's one of my favorite pillows. I have one. My qualifier has one too. So we each have one and I look at it all the time and it just reminds me of things that I can hold on to. I guess right now, as I'm listening to that podcast, we're dealing with the coronavirus and what's going on. I think I shared a little bit on the last episode that I'm considered an essential employee. So I guess it hasn't really changed a whole lot as far as my daily routine. However, the gym I don't have anymore, but I do at-home workouts and the gym that I go to is kind of, you know, coming together as a community. And it's really nice to see the loving words and reaching out and people, you know, even though we're social distancing and staying at home, we're still like keeping in contact and expressing how we feel and just supporting each other and trying to get each other through this. And so I do these virtual workouts and it's just really nice to, to have that. Also, you know, my sponsor and my Al-Anon community as well, my friends. This past weekend, the meeting that I really, really like on Saturdays decided to do a Zoom meeting, which I hadn't done before. And it was really nice just to, you know, connect with people and share a little bit and have a topic. Most of us shared about dealing with any frustration or anxiety or how we're coping with it. So it was really, really nice to hear that. But I guess when you think about despair and what's going on, like I said, my work is pretty much the same. We have taken a lot of precautions, you know, wearing masks, disinfecting, not allowing clients into our office, but rather curbside type service and calling when they arrive outside our building and kind of assisting them and and doing our service, you know, whatever we can do and then sending them on their way. They've 
been really understanding with everything. I think everyone feels the same is a little bit scared, but then there's also those clients that are very like, don't understand. And they're just showing up and some of them, not a whole lot of them, but just are disrespecting the boundaries that we've set or the rules we try to explain and be as nice as we can, but it doesn't happen too often. And so I'm really grateful. And I was able to tell one of my clients, you know, how appreciative and and grateful that I was that she was so understanding. And, you know, I had empathy and tried to be compassionate towards her needs and just listen to her and, and realize that she's having, you know, some tough times too, as far as work goes and the quarantine and everything. I think it just really touched both of us. So it was nice to have that connection too. So any positive that can come out of this, you know, people helping each other, respecting each other. I think I see a lot of that and I'm glad. I do hear some of the stories on the news and I try to stay away from that, but they're, you know, they're there. And I think it's kind of in a way maybe um, okay to hear some of that stuff, but not get consumed by it. Just to know that it's out there and that way I can be more appreciative and just grateful and count my blessings and just having hope that we'll get through this and having hope that nobody suffers anymore from this and, and hope that we can get the supplies we need and these other states that are struggling a little bit harder than we are can get what they need. It's just unfortunate that it takes an incident like this to have us learn from it, learn from it and grow and make it better for the future. I guess in a roundabout way, it's a, a learning process too for everybody. But anyways, I just wanted to share. I, I really like this. Like I said, the topic, I love the word hope. It means a lot to me. And I just, I'm really grateful that everyone's here and I hope that everyone stays safe and healthy. Thank you. Thank you. I don't actually have a plan for next week. I do have these episodes that I'm accumulating shares for, and, and I could probably put one of those together, one about recovery when the, the God language is difficult for you. How How is that working for you? How are you making that work for yourself? Or are you? What are you struggling with? Or what, what insights have you gained that, that let you work through the steps? So that's that's one I'm asking for contributions on. And the other one is just, and this one changes. And actually, I think this goes right to your suggestion, Barb. Mm -hmm. What are your meetings like? Because I know that in different regions, in different states, cities, countries, that the format of meetings is different or even from one meeting to another. And and somebody wrote and said, like, what are all the different ways that meetings happen? Mm. Uh, And I was like, well, let's hear from you guys. You know, if you want to share what your meetings are like, and and now, what are they like now? Right. Right? <laughs> how are you continuing, and maybe this is a different topic, I don't know, but how are you continuing to practice recovery while sheltering? Yeah. If you're sheltering. A lot of us are. I think, what, 75% of the states in the union now are, are sort of shelter in place. Mm-hmm. And who knows, you know, by next week, probably more. So are you using audio, video? How does this change the meeting experience for you? Does it improve it? Does it make it weirder, harder, worse? I don't know. You know, I went to a meeting this morning in Washington, D.C. Oh, that's so cool. <laughs> a person who's been a, a guest host a couple of times said, 
hey, I'm sharing at a meeting tomorrow. You know, I'd love to, to have you attend. I looked at it. I said, well, I can come for the first half hour because then I'm going to church. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but that's something I absolutely could not have done. Yeah. It There's going to be some opportunities here for all of us, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. We don't even know right? what the opportunities are because I think at the beginning, all we looked at was like, it doesn't work anymore. How are we yeah. going to have meetings, yeah. right? I had some grief and some fear. I yeah. was like, oh, no, I got to stay in recovery. And I'm sure my friends are feeling that way. What are we going to do? Yeah. yeah. So I'd love to hear from you, share your experience, strength and hope around how we are meeting now, how we are recovering now. You know, I had a meeting with a sponsee by Zoom yesterday, too. Uh-huh. I said, hey, you want to talk? He said, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, yes. Uh, and not to break any anonymity, but yeah, there were some issues to talk about uh, that come back to things like boundaries. Uh-huh. Okay. When you're when you're home with your loved one 24 hours a day, boundaries get different, don't they? <laughs> yes. So yes, how they do. do. How do we, how do we how are we practicing recovery? Send me an email, send a voicemail, record a voice memo on your phone and email it. However you want to communicate, we'd love to hear your voice and your experience. And Barb, what are the different ways people can do that? Sure, you can call and leave us a voicemail at seven three four seven zero seven eight seven nine five. Call right now to 734-707-8795. You can also use the voicemail button on the website to join the conversation from your computer. If you prefer not to use your voice, you can send email to feedback at the recovery.show. We'd love to hear from you. Share your experience, strength, and hope, or your questions about today's topic of fear or any of our upcoming topics, including what recovery looks like now for you. If you have a topic you'd like us to talk about, let us know. Spencer, where can our listeners find out more about The Recovery Show? Our website is therecovery.show or therecoveryshow.com. As a friend of mine says, I don't know what you keep saying, recovery.show. Well, it's shorter. Okay. Has all the information about the show. We have notes for each episode. This one will be at therecovery.show slash 327, 327. We'll include videos for the music that Barb chose, links to the books that she read from. I don't know if I've got anything else I need to make links to today, but we'll see. And we will take another short break before looking at our email and voicemail bag and the second musical selection. What is that? Sure. It's a song by Brandy Carlisle called The Eye. Here are some lyrics. It really breaks my heart to see a dear old friend go down to the worn out place again. Do you know the sound of a closing door? Have you heard that sound somewhere before? Do you wonder if she knows you anymore? And the chorus, I wrapped your love around me like a chain, but I never was afraid it would die. You can dance in a hurricane, but only if you're standing in the eye. Yeah, this song, it's not as not as hopeful as most of the music that I that I listen to, but it just reminds me of my my childhood and experience growing up in an alcoholic family system. Just got email this week. No voicemails. Deborah responded to a question that a listener sent to me about uh, her mentioning a parents' meeting, and the listener was like, "What's a parents' meeting? This sounds great. How do I, you know, tell me more?" Deborah responds, "Hi, Spencer. In Naples, Florida, we have a twenty-four hour club where the facility is owned and managed by the local AA, 
Al-Anon also uses the facility by paying a fee to conduct meetings. Two of the meetings of the many Al-Anon meetings held at this facility are named Serenity for Parents. They are traditional Al-Anon meetings, utilizing standard meeting guidelines and conference-approved literature. The participants are predominantly parents of alcoholic, addicted teens and adult children. As such, the sharing is focused primarily on parent issues. However, all Al-Anons and newcomers are welcome. Which is kind of what I thought when she said parents meeting, but I'm glad for the clarification. You know, there are there are meetings that tend to focus on a particular aspect of loving, living with an alcoholic or addict. One of the meetings that I go to, when it was formed, I think the focus was on being an adult child of alcoholics, because I think the the people who started it were. And it's it's morphed into more of just a, a general Al-Anon meeting as, as people discovered it. And so this happens. And in this case, here's, here's a couple of meetings that are focused on parents. I think if I was going to overgeneralize that in Naples, Florida, there probably are a lot of parents, mm. you know, when I think about Florida, I think about the population being an older demographic, et cetera. Right. Sure. Yeah. Anyway, but thanks. Thanks Deborah for that answer. To say it right. Dear Spencer, my brain has just exploded. I have never seen so many Al-Anon meetings on one page. I'm overcome with hope and joy. Thank you so much for writing back to me. I'm extremely grateful. Desea in Montreal. Yeah, so Desea wrote to me and said, I'm looking for online meetings. And I think I had just gotten like the list of all the meetings in LA. And I also had a local webpage with with some online Al-Anon meetings and I sent them. I've gotten a lot of email from people who are like, oh, online meetings, this is amazing, or who have found them with, with Zoom or other services. And uh, we already talked about Zoom bombing. But mm. again, I did put an update on the page at therecovery.show slash online, which also there's a menu item at the top of the page on the recovery show, online meetings that takes you there. And I put some information about precautions to take to help reduce the possibility that your meeting will get bombed, mm-hmm. Zoom bombed, whatever. It's a weird term, but also expressive. (laughs) A listener writes, Hello, Spencer. Thank you for your service. I'm a member of AA, but after a couple of years sober, I found myself having a hard time dealing and communicating with my wife and especially my youngest kid. Attending Al-Anon helped me grow in my relationships anywhere, not just with my wife and kid. I've also attended ACA, and it has also helped me a lot in my recovery. It speeded up my recovery. Last year, I took a job that requires a lot of traveling and also required me to relocate. It is easy to find AA meetings around the nation, of course, not at the moment because of COVID-19, but not so much Al-Anon meetings and let alone ACA. My Al-Anon meetings are your podcast. Thank you. And asked about the ACA online meeting that was mentioned, I think, in a letter in the last episode 326. And somebody had written in saying, hey, we've been having this ACA meeting online for a while, and this is how we do it, and sent me actually a lot of details about that meeting that I didn't feel comfortable posting on the website for reasons that we have talked about earlier today. Uh But I did send those details to this listener, and they were like, yes, that's exactly what I wanted. Thank you. CJ writes, thank you, Spencer and Mary Lou, for a very helpful and insightful The Recovery Show this week. The call out on air took me by surprise. I am grateful for that and for sharing my thoughts. A much needed episode and will be for a long time to come. The world has changed and will continue to change before our very eyes. And as these days are becoming even more difficult and darker, the recovery show is a shining beacon of much needed light 
normalcy and deep recovery for all in our amazing global community. So grateful to have this resource and to dip into it when my recovery requires, which is practically every day now. My mom died just over a year ago. She was 86, and I attended to her needs in palliative care for many years, so I can relate my dear friend in so many ways. Your higher power will help you get through all this as it did mine, as will your deep knowledge, skills, and profound experience in recovery. Take good care one day at a time. Charles from Belfast. Yeah, so last week, Charles CJ had written and said, Hey, how about a topic of meeting online? <laughs> so we read, read the letter in the in the feedback sure. section and said, "Is this is this what you needed?" <laughs> mm-hmm. Thanks, thanks for writing back, Charles. And uh, you know, my thoughts, my sympathy with you and, and your mom. Marissa responded to the question that somebody asked about the difference between peacemaker and peacekeeper with her own thoughts. Hi, Spencer and team. I've been meaning to write in a bunch of times about your amazing podcast. I can't tell you enough how many topics and episodes have hit me right between the eyes on days when I need the support of the program. Many blessings to you for all the hard work and effort you put into bringing the message of recovery to the world. I'm grateful beyond words. You asked about peacekeepers versus peacemakers in episode 322. In my mind and heart, they both have action involved, but at different levels or different times. When I think of peacemaker, it feels to me like a person who is actively pushing or controlling a situation to create the peace they believe is right in their own minds. For myself, when I'm trying to force a solution, I may be thinking that I am making peace. I recently came back into contact with some family members whom I had not been in touch with for several years, for various reasons all related to alcoholism. I can see now that my behavior has changed. I no longer say and do or speak to them in such a way as to make peace. I am more peaceful inside myself now from working my program and staying away from the toxicity of their disease so that my responses sound more peaceful and produce a more peaceful response in them. However, this is just a natural effect of working my program, and I'm not trying to make peace. In fact, with a recent text from one of these people that had a controlling tone to it, kind of per usual for this person, I simply did not respond. In the past, I would have pulled out all the stops to say or do the exact right thing to ensure this person felt positively about the situation. Now I simply let them feel the results of the situation and deal with their own feelings on their own. When I think of peacekeeper, I think of someone who believes peace is occurring right now and will do anything at any cost to keep it. It's also a form of control, but it's a little more passive in my mind. It's like when the peace comes, it's so shocking and unusual that all sorts of manipulation occurs trying to hang on to it. Again, the person trying to keep the peace has an idea of what peace looks like in their own mind and doesn't understand that peace might look, sound, and feel differently for others than for themselves. In both cases, it's a person trying to find peace for themselves, but controlling others to do so. It's another way of saying using that person to fill a God-sized hole. Peacekeepers in my mind and heart are much more in denial because they can't see that the peace they are trying to keep is an illusion. The only peace a person can truly have is the peace gained from a relationship to a higher power. Peace can never come from someone outside ourselves, but only from the inside. Growing up in an alcoholic home, I used walking away, isolation, humor, doormatness, and many other ill-formed tools to keep the peace. When your guest speaker for this episode mentioned flying under the radar, I could relate. That was the main way I tried to keep the peace in my family and maintain some kind of personal peace in the chaotic home environment I was experiencing as a youth. 
Likely, all this is splitting hairs. (laughs) Here are the Merriam-Webster definitions. Peacemaker, one who makes peace, especially by reconciling parties at variance. Peacekeeping, the dictionary didn't use the person form of the word. The preserving of peace, especially international enforcement and supervision of a truce between hostile states or communities. So maybe, peacemaker, more active, creating the peace, driving to create a certain vision of peace where none has existed, especially between two warring parties, like alcoholic parents. Peacekeeper, active in a backdoor way, maybe requiring more manipulation to control two parties not to not war again, maintaining peace that already seems to be there, requiring less creativity. Anyhow, these are just my interpretations. I thought the question was quite interesting and compelled me for the first time to write in. Also, I have more time on my hands at the moment, working from home and all. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thanks for all you do. Stay healthy and safe. Air hugs from Big Sky Country, Montana, Marissa. And then Marissa has a P.S., with a topic idea. I'm not sure you've ever had this topic in a past episode since I haven't listened to them all, but have you ever mentioned the effects of alcoholism on a person to the point where they avoid romantic relationships altogether? I have experienced this myself and generally avoid romantic relationships, and I'd like to hear from others about this idea. Thanks for sharing. So uh, when I was reading this peacekeeper, peacemaker, and especially the family of origin stuff, you were like nodding and smiling. So uh, I, I gather you have some, <laughs> some thoughts on this. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I do. I don't know if, I, if I'll go into it, but I definitely do. I definitely relate. Thank you for sharing. Okay. Thanks, Marissa. And no, we haven't, we haven't talked about that idea, that topic idea. So again, this is one where I need input from you, the listener, because not a place that I've been. And Jan also has thoughts on peacekeeping and peacemaking. Could you read that one? Sure. The way I understand the difference between peacekeeping and peacemaking is this. Peacekeeping is doing whatever it takes to avoid a scene. Peacekeeping is all about the moment with little consideration of the long run. I associate peacekeeping with enabling since as an enabler, I allow my decisions to revolve around my qualifier whims, desires, and opinion, I would do whatever it might take to keep the qualifier calm and hopefully sober for the moment. Peacekeeping is associated with being reactive. Peacemaking is most concerned with recovery for the long haul, which means having the courage to try to discover and understand the root of the problem and work toward healing and wholeness. Peacemaking is necessary for lasting serenity. I see peacemaking as the goal of the 12 steps. It requires an investment of time, energy, and attention, as well as the courage to be vulnerable, both the qualifier and myself, because honesty is essential to peacemaking, whereas peacekeeping is all about saying whatever you have to do to keep the peace. Thank you for the recovery show. Anytime I'm in my car alone, I'm listening to the show. I've listened to every episode at least once since discovering the show about a year ago. Jan. Wow. That's... (laughs) <laughs> wow. But, <laughs> that's like one a day. That's wonderful. Wow, such a great resource. Thank you. Cece wrote, having been in Ellen on a year, Spencer, oh, I don't know where to start. And like most, I could easily write you a book. Really tried not to. I'm so grateful. You and the Recovery Show crew, come and gone, new and old, are the primary reasons I kept coming back. Hello, I hope you and your family are doing well, especially during this pandemic. April 1st, 2019, I walked into my first Al-Anon meeting. 
I'd already listened to about three hours of the recovery show by then. I simply had skipped around and listened a bit here and there, and it made sense. You made sense. I can't remember the episodes. I know I love this birthday as it is so appropriate. (laughs) April (laughs) Fool's. Okay. I do remember that after that first meeting, I made the decision to listen to the recovery show from the beginning. I continuously had to remind myself that I was not current with the podcasts I was listening to and refrain from calling or writing. At the time, I couldn't concentrate well and wasn't able to retain much of what I was reading, so I opted to listen between distractions. I was determined to learn by osmosis, if nothing else. Lol. Or LOL, whatever. (laughs) I like to say lol just because lol. Bonus, your voice sounds very similar to a religious advisor, for lack of better words, I know, named Sharat, and oddly soothing. Okay, I, this is this is Spencer right here. Uh, when we started meeting online for work, one of my coworkers commented on my my podcasting setup with the microphone and everything, and and said, "You look like an FM announcer," and, and I was like. <laughs> So for your smooth jazz listening pleasure. <laughs> so now I'm the smooth jazz guy in the in the yeah. meetings. Okay. Back to CC's email. On my third meeting, I openly asked for a sponsor. I simply said, this feels right and I want to move forward. I quickly saw the program as a life manual. The world and now people's behavior have never made much sense to me and the program is helping me learn. Learning how to stop allowing myself being yanked around nearly as much physically and emotionally, which has helped me to understand and start to break my patterns of isolation, fear of being hurt, prejudgment, judgment, and anger. Now it is April 3rd, and I've had my first Al-Anon birthday. New lenses, attitude adjustments, mirror reflections, boundaries, and yes, a renewed taste of serenity when I remember to allow it. Serenity in ways I hadn't felt before, short of checking out in one form or another. May it have been distractions, important tasks, substance use, or giving my all to another's pain or anger. I'd never had any real concept of codependence, and I can see it now. Better yet, I can see how it happened both biologically and environmentally. Nature versus the lack of nurture I needed growing up and well into adulthood. I'm on episode 170 of 326, soon to be 327, says Spencer, of The Recovery Show. I'm also in the beginning of step four for the first time. Stuck for the last four months, but hey, I won't be forever and I'm okay with that. Progress, not perfection, says the perfectionist. The awesome thing for me about being stuck in step four, stuck is harsh, paused, is that I realized quickly why I was hesitant moving forward with step four and that I could now see my patterns through new lenses. This is significant progress, even if I've set the blueprint for progress workbook down for a while. I chose to feel those patterns instead of using them to solely avoid physical and emotional pain. Oh boy, I got what I wished for. I think that's supposed to be a smiley face. Lastly, for this email at least, since the pandemic has hit the U.S., my home meetings have temporarily transitioned from face-to-face to Zoom. I've been able to do some desired service work to keep our meetings going and help the less tech-savvy among us get set up with Zoom and call-in options. Our core regulars are all becoming familiarized with Zoom through use, and we as a group will soon be able to assist any newcomers with the tech options as needed. Progress. Thank you so much for what you do. I got inspirational or testimonial Al-Anon stories I haven't touched on, such as learning what loving detachment is, unconditional love, learn through a rescue adoption, how to find my higher power, my first convention, and more. I hope I have the opportunity someday to see that blue hair and shake your hand at convention or conference. Keep doing your do, brother. 
Well, thanks, CC. And wow, that is amazing progress. I guess I was on step four at the end of my first year. And the only reason I wasn't stuck on step four is because I was doing it with a group that kept us moving forward because I had a commitment to the group to come in every week and say, and this is my thoughts on these questions that we haven't talked about yet. Yeah, blue hair. That was the thing. It's it's not blue at the moment. I've actually kind of slacked on coloring it since I'm at home <laughs> anyway. And like, who's going to see it? It's kind of pinkish right now, but it will have color again at some point, I know. <laughs> but it might not be blue. Wow. Any thoughts on, on Cece's year in recovery? Wow. Yeah, well, I, I've been in recovery in ACA just over a year, and I am on step four as well. And I can totally, I mean, I'm in ACA, so different fellowship, but we have a step workbook. And yeah, I sometimes I only do the step four work 10 minutes a day. And I used to think that I wouldn't be, I, I thought it wouldn't take me as long, I guess. I don't know, but I'm just being really gentle with myself. But I can really, I can relate to that. It's going to take as long as it's going to take. Yeah. These people that are like, oh yeah, I did it on a weekend. Like, no, that's <laughs> not, not going to happen in my world. <laughs> how does that happen? Yeah. Uh, yeah, what I had to do, and, and you know, it sounds like you're making great progress, CC, but I'll just share a little bit. My experience was I had to schedule myself a time in the week to work on it. For me, at least the last time I was working, step four was Tuesday lunch. Tuesday lunch was my step work lunch. And hmm. so I would take my blueprint for progress to wherever I was having lunch that day. It often was at that point in my life an Indian buffet. So mm-hmm. I could get a plate full of food and sit down at the, the table by myself with the blueprint and, and fill in yeah. a couple of questions, maybe. Mm. And it was slow but steady progress. Yeah. And and I didn't have to feel like, oh, I at any given moment, oh, I should really be working on this. Because I knew Tuesday at lunch, I was going to work on it. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's what works for me. Mm-hmm. I like that idea. Well, that's our correspondence for this week. What's your last song selection here? Sure. The last song is by Casey Musgraves called Rainbow. And here are some lyrics. When it rains, it pours, but you didn't even notice. It ain't raining anymore. It's hard to breathe when all you know is the struggle of staying above the rising water line. Well, the sky is finally open. The rain and wind stopped blowing, but you're stuck out in the same old storm again. You hold tight to your umbrella. Well, darling, I'm just trying to tell you that there's always been a rainbow hanging over your head. I like that. It it feels hopeful. I've been listening to that song a lot these last few weeks. (laughs) Yeah. Just this morning, I was listening to a a music podcast. They were talking about new music that's just been released. Mm. And there's a song from the group Little Dragon on their new album, I just thought, oh, this would be like really good for today. It's called, Are You Feeling Sad? Mm. I think the lyric, the repeated lyric is, it's going to be all right. Mm-hmm. Um, it's going to be okay. Something like that. It's kind of an uplifting song that the yeah. hosts of this music podcast were like, this is just the right song for, for this day. Mm. So I am going to put a Spotify playlist on the website along with the uh, music videos for the three songs that you chose and that song will be in the playlist along with yours yeah music is so important to my recovery
Thank you for listening, and please keep coming back. Whatever your problems, there are those among us who have had them too. If we did not talk about a problem you are facing today, feel free to contact us so we can talk about it in a future episode. May understanding, love, and peace grow in you one day at a time.